Well, let me invite you to get your Bibles and turn to the book of Colossians, the book of Colossians. And um, we want to take some time this morning. Um, I'm going to read Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, and I want to invite you to follow along as I read. Colossians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. The Apostle Paul says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving." See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled with him who is the head of all rule and authority. Join me if you would please as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, I thank you that you have given us your word. I thank you, Lord, that through your word that we have a greater picture and understanding of who you are and, Lord, what you have done and how you want us to live our lives and, Lord, even how you want uh, your church to, uh, to function, Lord, and, and what to lean on and, and what to be striving for. So, Lord, help us today as we contemplate, Lord, these verses of Scripture and what, uh, Lord, you are calling us to here, both as individuals as well as a corporate gathering of believers committed, Lord, to doing your will. Uh, Lord, I just ask as your messenger today that you would use me as your mouthpiece to accomplish your purpose in your name. Amen. I don't know if you've noticed this, but it seems like in recent months, um, really over the past year, you might even say, we have just been inundated with things like tsunamis, earthquakes, tornadoes, wars, and they're capturing people's attention. They're on the news regularly. And, uh, you know, just about the time one disaster happens and you're starting to think about it and you're praying about it, somewhere else in the world something else happens and you're shifting your focus and you're there now. And, I mean, do you guys remember Haiti and what happened there? But it seems like there's been so many things since then that you can forget about it. And recently it's been the tornadoes that have just, you know, gone through and, and decimated, um, you know, portions, huge portions of some cities and communities. Uh, these are significant disasters, um, and they certainly capture our attention. As Paul speaks, though, he is bringing to our attention some disasters, some tsunamis, some earthquakes, some wars, you might say, that are taking place within the church that he wants us to be mindful of. So we can see the world through, through its, its natural um, order and, and the things that are happening in the world. But Paul brings our attention inside the church and draws our attention to what he calls plausible arguments that can delude God's people, that can deceive God's people, that can ultimately destroy the very church that they are a part of, and the very gospel that they hold dear to. And so, this morning, I just simply want to establish the fact that we are living in a context, in an atmosphere that is full of plausible arguments that are drawing people away from Christ and away from the gospel that we love so dearly. So what are these plausible arguments? And do we have an answer for them? Well, this morning I want to look first of all at the danger of plausible arguments, and then I want to look at the delight that we have in gospel solutions, all right? The danger of plausible arguments, and then the delight that we have in the gospel solutions. And we're, we're looking 
in the book of Colossians here. And it's just really amazing how Paul lays this out for us. But Paul begins by giving his readers a caution. Look at verse 4 of chapter 2. He's concerned that they will be deluded or deceived by this false reasoning, by these plausible arguments. He says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. He is concerned. There is a caution there for his people, for, for God's children in the church, that they would be led astray, that they would drift, that they would be pulled away with reasonable sounding arguments. Now these plausible arguments are much like the reasoning that takes place from a defense lawyer who's defending his client that he knows is guilty. But he's creating and crafting what he's saying to present a case because he's responsible to do that in the court of law, right? To make the facts that he's presenting sound plausible enough so that this person who is guilty will be found not guilty. His job then is to fool you. His job is to trick you. And ultimately that's what's going on here, is that these plausible arguments are there to trick us, to delude us, to draw us away from the truth of the gospel. The goal of a plausible argument then is to talk you into embracing what is not true. Now, notice also verse 8. Here we have Paul giving a command. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world and not according to Christ. And so he's saying, listen, see to it. That, that, the idea there is a, it's a command. Beware and make sure you're doing this. Make sure you understand that these plausible arguments, these reasonings, these drawings uh, of people away from the truth are actually taking place, are actually happening. And so he's commanding them to make this a serious point. He's concerned that their walk would be hindered or derailed by these plausible arguments. And then he says, because he doesn't want them to be captive. And the idea of that word captive has kind of two ideas. One is the, the carrying off of spoils from war. You can just imagine a soldier, after being in battle, going into various places and finding whatever they can and just putting it in a bag and walking off from war saying, isn't this great, I've got a lot of stuff. And the other idea there is the idea of kidnapping. So just imagine here that these plausible arguments are having the result, if God's people are embracing them, they have the result of taking you captive and making you a slave to false teaching and false ideas. Paul is saying, listen, we want to be careful. I want you to be careful and I want you to, to see to it that you are not being taken captive here by these plausible arguments. I think what's interesting as I studied this is that what Paul is talking about here is not, is not some kind of idea that is outside of the church. These plausible arguments are, are arguments that are present and were present in the Colossian church and the broad church. It actually falls under the label of Gnosticism. And I was, I was just kind of you know, doing some, some research on this this week and listened to someone talk about Gnosticism. And, and they, they just kind of went off and talked about, there was like, like nine or ten various sects of Gnostic thinking that was taking place within the church. So these were movements within the church, not something out there. And friends, that should caution us. If these kind of movements that were drawing people away from the gospel, drawing people away from Christ, were in the church in Paul's time, certainly they are present within the church now. And we're going to touch on a few of those in just a little bit. All right, so the question now is this. What does all this look like? What does a plausible argument look like? Look at verse 8 then again. And we're told there, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world. Now, the first thing to note here is this. Uh, we have a definition. A definition of plausible arguments is, it's philosophy. Alright? 
It's this word philosophy. Now here's where we need to kind of be careful. The argument here isn't about the academic side of philosophy. How many of you here ever went to college and took philosophy in class? Okay. There is an academic side to philosophy. I did too. And I remember I still have in my brain the ionists and those people that believe that the world was made up of four different elements and it all depends on how many more elements there are of this and that and the others. It's man's reasoning to explain the world, right? But this is much broader than the thinking or just simply the academic awareness and understanding of what those ideas are. These are actual belief systems that are present, that are being pushed, and that are being um, taught in the context of the church here. Josephus, you might even have this in your, in your notes in your Bible, but Josephus, um, when he looked at the Jews, he understood that there were three different sects of Jews. There were the Pharisees, there were the Sadducees, and there were the Essenes. Now, why is that significant? Because within Judaism, then there are three different schools of thought that have three different views on who God is and how we are to live and what our purpose is in life. So all under that umbrella, you have these different groups. Okay? And it's also interesting that in the Greek um, language here, there is a definite article behind that word philosophy. So Paul is saying specifically there is a particular philosophy that is affecting you. So well, why is that significant? Well, they were experiencing the, the pressure of Gnosticism, which basically um, was a mixture of Greek thinking that said that matter is insignificant, that spirit is more important. So they denied certain things about who Christ was, and there's all sorts of different forms of it. And much of this letter is really written to counteract that. And that's why, that's why the, 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 the glory of Jesus Christ is revealed here in uh, the book of Colossians. I mean, there's so much of it that just identifies who he is. So, this Gnosticism was certainly a present problem for the Colossian church and the churches in that area also because he mentions Laodicea, which is all in the same region. Now, let's kind of bring this to our context. What are some of the philosophical mindsets that we have in our broader Christian umbrella? And I'm using that very, very loosely, okay? Now, my goal here is not to not to you know, badmouth any particular group, but simply to identify what are some plausible arguments that are under the umbrella of Christendom. I certainly don't have everything listed out here in an exhaustive list, but let's just think through some of them, all right? The self-esteem movement. Anyone remember that? The 80s. The answer to everyone's problem was what? Low self-esteem, and you need to build your self-esteem. That's what you heard all over the place. All right. Now, here's the element of truth. The element of truth is we find our true worth and value only in how we understand who Jesus is and what he has done for us. If we are building someone's self-esteem by saying, oh, your hair looks nice today, or surface things like that, it's really not going to have any substance. The real substance for us is to realize we have a sovereign God who created us the way he wanted us to be, and we need to find our purpose and our our, our place in him, right? Okay? But the self-esteem movement just permeated um, not only our culture, but it also was brought and sucked into the church. And it was preached uh, many times. In fact, uh, you know, one of, one of the leaders in that movement said, man's biggest problem is not sin, it's his low self-esteem. Now you just think that through. How in the world can a minister of God's word ever get to that point? It's slow delusions, slow pullings away from the gospel and what the gospel is all about. Here's another one. The marketing movement. Within the body of Christ, right? And the marketing movement simply said this. If we build it like they want it, they will come. Alright? I mean, literally, it's like, you know, they went knocking on doors in the community. If you want to start a church in Castro Valley, knock on the doors in Castro Valley and ask them, you know, what kind of church would you go to if you, you know, thought about possibly maybe even going to church? What would it look like and what would you want? And so you list out, all right, and then they create a church based on that. Okay? But there was a whole thinking and that blew into the church and churches started to change how they did things. And, okay, and again, one of the main places that did that look back at what they did and what they promoted and they were the ones that were pumping out the materials and the instruction looking back and saying you know what we were wrong 
This wasn't what God really calls us to. We failed in that department. But a lot of people were sucked in. A lot of believers, a lot of churches were sucked in. All right? Here's another one. The health, wealth, and prosperity movement. All right? Um, how many of you here would like to have a little bit more money? How many of you would maybe, you know, like to have nicer clothes or pay off your house or, you know? It's very, very easy to get sucked into the health, wealth, and prosperity movement because the promises and the, the, the lures are out there saying, hey, grab a hold of this, grab a hold of this. Jesus will give you these things. In fact, you deserve these things. Okay? Now, does God take care of us? Does he promise to take care of us? Yeah, that doesn't mean you're going to get a Cadillac. Right? Um, you might get a 1975 Cadillac, but that's a whole other story, right? All right? But the, yeah, it's a classic now, yeah. All right. But, you know, the, the point is, and, and that movement is still huge. It still, it still has momentum, and people are, are sucked into it. Okay? But it is deluding people, and it's moving people away from the centrality of the gospel. They've changed a view of who God is and his, his role and their relationship with him. Okay? Um, another one. The you deserve the best for your life now movement. Okay? And there's a certain pastor somewhere in Texas in a big stadium that has promoted that kind of a movement. It's all positive. It's all Pollyanna-ish. You know what I mean by that? Just give me all the good things and encourage me and God wants the best for you. And you, you, know, and you know what? I think it would be true to say God does want the best for you, but what you think is best is not what God has intended. His best for you is the trial you're going through, is the struggle you're facing, is the financial problem you're, you're experiencing. Because he has something that he is preparing you for, and it may not be here, it may be eternity. Okay? So it's, these, these are lies, these are falsehoods that people are sucked into because of charismatic personalities. But it's all part of the church. Here's another one, the, the positive thinking movement. If you just... If you just put your mind to it, if you just think positively, I mean, the Bible does say, think on these things, right? So I think on these things, and, and I constantly am focused on Christ. He will, he will just provide those things that need to take place. And the problem really is, is my thinking, my lack of thinking positively. Um, that thinking has permeated a lot of culture. In fact, it's been the foundation for the self-esteem movement, even the marketing movement. Okay? So... It's, it's an older one, but it's still around. I think Norman Vincent Peale was one of the ones that really kind of pushed that in. Okay? Um, a more recent one, the Emergent Church, um, which really was a, a revisiting of, of medieval methodologies and thinkings and ceremonies. And it was a reaction to the marketing um, strategy, philosophy, you might want to say. Um, but it just had a lot of confusion and the theology was kind of strange. Um, and I got something here because some of you may be aware of this. And I don't mean to you know, necessarily spend too much time on this, but you guys may know this guy. His name is Rob Bell. Um, on Time Magazine, I think the last one, um, his book, and he was actually on the cover because what he said in this book caused so much stirring in the Christendom. He wrote a book called Love Wins. And um, in this particular book, he basically is promoting universalism, which means that that God uh, sent His Son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for everyone, and really the only ones that aren't going to be in heaven are the ones that just really, really, really have chosen not to be there. Okay, let me just, let me just read a few things for you here. Okay, um, this is from World Magazine. Bell's book Love Wins argues that a good and loving God could not condemn people permanently to hell, and that because the Orthodox conception of hell, many see, Christ the, see the Christian message as an endless list of absurdities and inconsistencies. That's what he says. Okay? Uh, Justin Taylor argued, he's written a blog, Ellie is moving farther and farther away from anything resembling biblical Christianity. Um, he is a. Uh, promoting universalism, the view that all mankind will ultimately be redeemed. Um, the president of Fuller Theological Seminary, 
which is where Bell is trained, contended that Bell was well within the bounds of the generous orthodoxy.
I have experienced some of that. Um, a few months ago, I was helping my dad. He was still alive in, in the Atlanta area. He was in the nursing home. And, you know, every once in a while, he'd say, said, Rod, you know, I'm really craving, you know, one more time, there's waffles. So I got there early morning. He says, Rod, I need, I need some waffles, because he was just having pureed food, and it was just kind of nasty. He's like, give me some waffles. So I go out to the uh, waffle house, you know, and I give myself uh, just a nice waffle and the syrup and the butter, and I'm thinking, I'm getting a great son. I'm getting my dad a waffle, and he's going to enjoy it. He's going to love it. I get there. I cut it up for him. I prepare it for him. He takes, takes a couple bites, and he doesn't eat more. He's like, Dad, why aren't we finishing the waffle? He said, it tasted better in my head than it actually tastes. And isn't that true about so much? It just, it tastes better up here. It seems better up here than it actually is. And it's so easy for our culture, even the things with, within or under the umbrella of Christendom, to sound plausible, but when you bite into them, maybe at first, because you have this euphoric kind of thing, you know, they said this is going to work, so I'm doing it, oh, it's working, it's working, you know, whatever. And then you realize it's empty. You've been into something that had no substance whatsoever. And that's the idea here. And there's the cause of plausible arguments. This kind of goes down to the foundation here, the tradition of men. And then, of course, the elementary spirits of this world. Let's just think about the tradition of men. Now, notice this doesn't just say tradition. Tradition isn't necessarily a bad thing. The emphasis here is the tradition of men. Right? Man's thinking. The tradition that, that man passes down year after year, verbally from one to another. Um, is the focus here. I mean, you may have some traditions. Some of you may open your presents on Christmas Eve rather than Christmas Day. Those are you wicked people, all right? Um, some of you have special food at New Year's, which I will eat, called menudo. Um, you know, like some, some, you know, we, we all have traditions, and that's okay to have family traditions, but, but the, the reality here, guys, is this, is that there is tradition passed down that is man's tradition, man's philosophy. And, and listen, the, the Jews, they experienced that. In fact, in particular, during Christ's day, um, the truth of God was eclipsed. But all that the Pharisees, and even the Sadducees, and the whole Jewish economy, really encrusted God's truth with. You couldn't get down to it because you had to beat through this crust of the law that they had added to and they had added to. And it was... Man's tradition. They may have started out with good intentions, but it resulted as being the truth, as opposed to directing you to the truth. And we've got to be careful even with good traditions. Right? Um, in, in the Greek world, that was true too. Look at 1 Peter 1.8. 1 Peter 1.8. Here, here Peter is speaking... And he's speaking now to a, a broader context than simply the Jews. First Peter 1.18. He says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited, and you can put in parentheses there, received by tradition from your forefathers. And my point here is simply to say this. The Greeks also were affected by this whole idea of tradition. And the reality is much of our culture is based on tradition, isn't it? We go back to, you know, this person said this, and we build on that, and we grow from that, and we, we add to the, the truths that have been presented within our, our culture. We add on top of those things. And there's certainly some elements of truth there, but when it comes to philosophy, when it comes to understanding who God is, if we're basing that on human tradition, we're, we're going to be missing the point. So the, the, the source here, the cause, first of all, is the tradition of this is where it comes from. The, the next one is the elementary spirits of this world. Or in your Bible, it might say the elementary principles. How many of you have principles in your Bible? No? Do you? Do you have that? I'm just asking. Do you have elementary principles or elementary spirits? I'm sorry. Um, that would be, yeah, eight, verse 8 at the end. If you have the ESV, it says spirits. I think if you have an NIV, or even a New American, I think it says principles. Right, 
influential forces, okay? And, and the, I just want to bring up that this is one of those passages that there is some disagreement as to how to interpret it, okay? The first one would be the elementary spirits, or elemental spirits. The idea there is that it is the spirit world that is at work accomplishing what, what you know, Satan, the prince of the power of the air, is desiring to do to, to debunk and to move people away from the truth. And so that is being fleshed out. The other interpretation would be these elementary principles. The idea there would be um, that word elementary, and the idea there is that it's talking about the alphabet. And we would call it the ABCs of life. That's kind of like the idea here that the ABCs that mankind has come up with that are standard practices. You know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Is that in the Bible somewhere? statements like that that we hold to that are not in scripture but sound scriptural. Yeah, God helps those who helps themselves. It's not in scripture. You see, these are these are things that people even out in the world that aren't part of a church, they embrace and they, they hold on to, but they're they're just kind of basic principles that mankind comes up with to think about why they exist and all that kind of stuff. Okay? So this is where this stuff comes from. But ultimately, all of these philosophies fall short because they're not in accordance with Christ. And that's what it says right first at the end of verse um, 8. Now, according to the elemental spirits of this world, and not according to Christ. Now, I want you to notice now verse 9 of Colossians 2. Now, this is really helpful for me. Because now he flushes out a little bit more what he means by not according to Christ. For in him... The whole fullness of what? Deity dwells bodily. He's giving a straight answer here to one of the things that the Gnostics didn't believe. That Jesus Christ is God. And he is God in the flesh. Okay. The second thing there says, and you have been filled in him. The idea there is you have been completed in him. And then it says, who is the head of all rule and authority? I mean, it's going to be three things that this verse is telling us about these elemental principles and these philosophies. All right? First of all, they deny the centrality of the deity of Christ. All right? That Jesus really is not God. He's a powerful being to help you get what you want in life. Maybe he's kind of like a genie that you go to every once in a while. But he is not God. Okay? The next one would be, um, they deny the centrality of the sufficiency of Christ. That he is not enough. Alright? That he's good, he's helpful, he'll suck in the right direction, but ultimately I need something more. In the Colossian economy, that would have been experiential things. And certainly this is true within the church today. There's a desire for more. But that could mean that we aren't satisfied with Jesus and that we aren't turning to Jesus to satisfy our, our longings and our, our struggles, right? The last one is they deny the sexuality of the Lordship of Christ, that He is not our master. Therefore, I can pick and choose what I want to say is God's truth and it's not God's truth. But he's not my master. Listen, God calls us, and he desires for us to see that he is, he is God. He desires to be and is sufficient for all the things that we struggle with. And he is our Lord and Master. And all these plausible arguments are, are, are attacking one of those areas, and are drifting in one of those areas. So that would like function. Well, that's why we need to go to the next thing, because although there are these dangerous, plausible arguments, now Paul is going to flesh out for us the delightful gospel solutions. Here's the counter to these plausible arguments. So how do we respond to these? Um, I believe what God calls us to is this, and I've, I've put this together based on starting at chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through, through verse 9 of, of chapter 2. Okay, And here's the statement. You have it there in your hand. Preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ in an atmosphere of plausible arguments. 
It's been a long time so far just to establish the fact that we're living in a context, we're living in, a, in an arena, in an atmosphere where there are plausible arguments. You turn your radio on, you go to a Christian bookstore, you might go to various churches, and there's going to be all sorts of plausible arguments, but God calls us to something in that context. And in fact, friends, it's why we are here in this place. It's why we are saying that the gateway Bible church needs to exist. Because we want something to be seen, we want the plausible arguments to have an answer, and God gives us an answer, and we believe that holding this truth is going to be the means by which we can be a God-centered, Christ-centered, gospel-centered church. Alright? There's a need for us then to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ in an atmosphere of plausible arguments, and you're saying, oh, wait a second, what does that mean, Robert? I mean, you're the one who's preaching. I'm sitting here listening. We'll, we'll, we'll work through that as we go. But I want to go back and just connect some dots for us, okay? Just so you can see where I got this from. Look at chapter 1 and verse 4. It says this, Of this you have heard before the word of truth, the gospel. So right at the beginning, he's bringing out the gospel, and he's calling it the word of truth, right? That's what he says. Which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So the gospel is described in three ways there. The gospel, the word of truth, the grace of God in truth. You see that there? Okay. Now look at chapter 1, verse 9. And 10, Paul tells us, um, or tells them as, He's been praying for them that they, first of all, will be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as, with this purpose, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, bearing fruit in all, in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Now, you could look, in summary, to say that the answer to the plausible arguments is to please him. Which kind of encompasses everything we're going to be talking about. Right? He's saying, this is what I want you to do. I want you to please him in all that you do. Then look at verse 15. He now focuses, shifts his focus from the gospel to the Savior. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to read all this, but notice in verse 15. And I just want you to notice the, the he is and by him and through him and for him and in him and in him and through him. It's all throughout this passage. Right. He is the image of the invisible God, the first part of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning of the firstborn of the dead, uh, from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things to himself. Um, sorry, reconcile himself, to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. I mean, it's, just, it's, it's Jesus, it's Jesus, it's Jesus, it's through him, it's in him, it's by him. But he is the reason. And it goes on in this passage, that you can Turn over to um, verse 9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells, and you have been filled in him who is the head of the royal authority. In him also you're, you were circumcised. Verse 12, you have been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him, and just in him, with him, by him. Right? The, the point here is this there's the gospel he mentions, and now he stops and says, Now I want you to see Christ. Who is the story? Who is the main figure of the gospel? Okay? Now I want you to notice verse 23. He says, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I became a minister. So I want you to notice the gospel, the proclamation of that gospel that he's talking about that they heard. Now, verse 29. Him we proclaim. Who's the we? It's Paul. Schizophrenic. See, like, you have two people in one body speaking here. No. Him, Jesus, we proclaim. I do it, and you do it. 
proclaim is the same word for preaching. So let me let's flesh this out for us purposely here, right? What we have here, first of all, is a call for every believer to preach the gospel to themselves. Look at verse 6. Therefore, as you receive Christ, Jesus as Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught about in Thanksgiving. What is the answer to these plausible arguments for you in particular? You've come to know Christ. You've, you've embraced him as Lord and Savior. He has done an incredible work in you. What do you need to do now when you're faced with these plausible arguments? You need to preach the gospel to yourself. You need to remind yourself of what Jesus did for you and what that means and what it looks like so that you don't drift away from it. Let's look a little closer here as to what this verse is telling us. It says here that as you receive Christ, Jesus as Lord said, walk in him. So that has continual uh, progressive motion to it, right? To keep walking. But how is it? Why is it that you walk? First of all, it says that you have been rooted in him. You've been rooted in him. What does that mean? It's literally a word that has a has a has a great tense that means that something took place in the past at a definite time that has future implications. This future consequences. It's talking about that point when when Jesus brought you into the, the family of God, that point of salvation, that point of conversion. That was a time in the past, but it has future implications. And as you hear these plausible arguments, we must say, God, I know what you've done. I know what you accomplished on the cross. I know that what took place in my life at that particular point in time is true and has future implications. We need to preach that message to ourselves because plausible arguments will come along and try and pull us away from that. So this is your position in Christ, you might say. This is your salvation. The next one is this. You're being built up in Him. The next one, you are established in the faith. Both of these are in the same tense. These are things now that um, are happening more and more. They're continuing and they are developing. So you are rooted in Him, this point of salvation. But now, as you're walking your Christian life, you are being built up in Him. You are growing, um, you are being established in the faith, the truth. You are you're growing your understanding of what that truth is. These things are all taking place. And listen, you're not the one that's doing it. All three of these statements here, these, these uh, participles here, are talking about what God is doing in you. What He did in you that has continuing results. What He is doing in you. See the distinction there? He is at work doing these things. He's at work building you up. He's at work establishing you in the faith. And all of the experiences you're going through are all part of God's plan to do that. Right? And the last one here is this. Just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So when I'm reminded that God is faithful to keep his promise and to keep growing me, I will overflow in thanksgiving. That's the idea. Because, listen, if I know that what took place in my past is true, and I know that he is still working on me, I'm growing, I haven't been completely perfected in my, in my earthly existence here, but I am sealed with him, I am in him, I am, well, he is working through me to accomplish his purposes. I can say, you know what, I went through this trial, I went through this difficulty, and I can rejoice that God is at work in me. I need that gospel. You and I need to preach that gospel to ourselves every day. The gospel of Jesus Christ is something we need to know, we need to apply, and we need to proclaim. God's truth is so critical for us. So this is what happens when we preach the gospel to ourselves. There's also a call for every pastor. Verse 27 now of chapter 1. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. What is the mystery? Which is Christ in you. The what? The hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and 
teaching everyone with all wisdom. Yeah, this is a, a way responsibility, just as much as a pastor's responsibility. That we may present everyone, what? Mature in Christ. And he says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. This is the labor of a pastor. This is the labor of someone who is ministering the word. This is the hard work, the struggle, the toil that God is working in me to accomplish his will through me. Okay? And any, any pastor, and I'll just use me as an example as I'm up here, if I say something that isn't the gospel, I shouldn't be saying it. It is the gospel that we need. Now, there's the, there's the gospel, the specifics of the details of the cross, right? But there's also the implications of that that we say are the gospel. We need that truth applied to our, our lives every day. So there's, there's a call for every believer, there's a call for every pastor. But finally, here I want you to notice that there's a need for every unbeliever. Have you found this when you're talking to people? That you're, you're trying to, to nudge them or nudge the conversation or nudge your relationship toward the gospel. And you find yourself wondering or just kind of coming up with, like, and say, a, a, an answer that kind of is a shortcoming answer because you just maybe are, are desiring to be so bold with the gospel. So you're just thankful for maybe a little progress or a little direction. And maybe you just should read your Bible more. But reading the Bible more may be good, but it's not sufficient. Maybe you should go to church more. Well, it's good, but it's not sufficient. Maybe you need to, you know, go to a particular counselor. Well, maybe good, but that isn't sufficient. And what they really need, this, this is what we have to be convinced of, is they need the gospel. They need the truth of the gospel proclaimed to them. That doesn't mean that you're sitting here, you know, in your house, and you get up, and you get your Bible, and you start, I mean, this is what the gospel said, right? It just means you're just unfolding God's truth and you're showing the implications of the cross, the implications of what it means to have Jesus as your Savior. And what he did with your sin. And how that sin now has been paid for, but there's still a struggle in your relationship with him. And so, with that struggle, you can say, God, because I am rooted in you, even though I fell in my relationship, I know that you are still growing me. Because people need that. And those who are lost need that clear, um, open, and proclaimed gospel. Simply giving them a, a soft answer isn't going to do it. They need the gospel. My friends, I just, I just want to just make it a point here just to say this. It is so easy to water down the gospel, is it not? Right? God is love. Is that the gospel? Instead of the gospel, if you are defining God and defining love in certain ways, it's insufficient, but it's acceptable, right? The gospel is, you are a sinner. And because of that sin, there is going to be a consequence, and it is death. Or I might say the wrath of God. He did love you, does love you, sent his son Jesus Christ to a cross, and on that cross he paid for your sin. What was done on the cross was sufficient to satisfy God's wrath so that that wrath would not be poured on you. And when you embrace Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that wrath that should be going on to you is poured onto his son. And with that, you can enter into a new relationship. With God. Many people don't want to talk about the wrath side. Many people don't want to talk about the sin side. But it is part of the gospel that has to be there. That we have an incomplete gospel. But it seems plausible sometimes to kind of soften the gospel. In fact, it may be popular with certain people to be soft on the gospel. What we need is a robust gospel. And that's what Paul offers here. With all these plausible arguments, we need to be sure 
that we know where we stand and that God is speaking into the situation that we are in, that He is our God and what He says is true, that He is Christ, that He is sufficient, that He is our authority, our master, our teacher, who we should listen to. A number of years ago, a couple of years ago, my brother came to visit and he said, you know, you're here, let's go to let's go to the city. I'm gonna show you the city. Of course he wanted to do that. It was a beautiful day, sun was shining. We started driving over to the city and we could see the, the fog coming over. By the time we got to Daly City, the fog was coming. It was just really cool. I mean it just it was just kind of like you know, the hound of the Baskervilles kind of a thing. You know, it was just this really kind of cool stuff that we're almost reaching in and grabbing it. We finally pulled up to the Golden Gate Bridge, and really we're about 20 feet away, and you couldn't see it. The fog was so thick. In fact, sometimes Christendom is full of fog. It's full of fog that we would call, Paul calls, plausible arguments. And what we need to fight for is the gospel. And to see the gospel, and the gospel becomes our compass to help us wade through the fog. The gospel is absolutely necessary, and it is the answer, friends, to all the philosophies and all the plausible arguments that man can give. It's why we exist. It's what God has called us to. But Satan would love to drift you away from standing firm on that gospel. So this morning, let us be encouraged. Because we have the gospel. It has not been kept from us. We have it clearly, and it satisfies. And God is calling us to once again embrace it, to rejoice over it, to know it, to apply it, and to proclaim it for His glory. But help us today. This has not been a, an easy topic, but a necessary one, Lord. We are inundated with various ideas that just draw us away from keeping our focus where it needs to be, keeping our trust where it needs to be. Would, would you allow us to be strengthened in our hearts and our spirits, that we would embrace a love for your gospel, a desire to know your gospel more, to see it applied in our lives. So may we be faithful to preach the gospel to ourselves, be reminded of your promises, of your truths, so that we can, we can be anchored Lord, in the storms that we face because of man's thinking and even the thinking that creeps into the church. We ask now for your strength and your direction now in your name. Amen. We're going to finish today by celebrating the Lord's Supper. And um, let's just uh, quiet our hearts for a minute here. And just ask God if there's something maybe that 